Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are always coming to the end of our Joseph novella around this time of year, around the dark time of the year. We are always coming to the end of the life of Jacob. And we're coming to the beginning of the narrative about how our ancestors got to Egypt, right? So this is the end of the Joseph story, the beginning of the story that's going to pick up in Exodus. So how did we get there? How is it that we came to be enslaved? This is the beginning of that story and the end of the patriarchal narratives. Uh, Joseph never has a direct vision from God. So the patriarchal... uh, generations come to an end with Yaakov, with Jacob. Um, The rabbis do not include Yosef in the patriarchs. He never had kind of that direct experience of God speaking to him and promising him that his his offspring would become, right, like the multitudes of the heavens and and that they would inherit the land, that his offspring would inherit the land. Um, And so we're going to get a very interesting um, thing happening here since that didn't happen for Yosef. He wasn't officially promised that. We're going to see one of the responses uh, of how then Ephraim and Manasseh become part of the tribal confederacy uh, of, of the people of Israel. As explained by Torah, right? All right. Let's look at the beginning of Parshat. So who wants to begin at 48. All right. So, Yaakov has lived most of his adult life without Yosef. Right? He's he's assumed that he's dead because of the evidence that the brothers give him of the coat dipped in kid's blood. The Midrashic tradition, remember, says that Yaakov never gave up hope that Yosef was alive. Never. And they read all these wonderful openings into that possibility and different places in our text. In either case, um, he lives 17 years with reunited with Yosef. And uh, again, the tradition says, why, you know, what does it mean? And he lived in the land of Egypt. Shouldn't it say he dwelt in the land of Egypt? Why does it say, Vayechi Yaakov Eretz Mitzrayim? That he lived. That's not the typical word that Torah uses for being somewhere. Right? So happy to be with Joseph. He's so happy to be with Yosef that he was alive in a way that he was not when Yosef was missing. Right? That there's a somehow an existential difference to the quality of just being, existing, 
um, that is for Yaakov now in a way that wasn't before. So if we think of our own lives and we think of times where we were just kind of here, kind of existing, and then times where we truly felt alive. That uh, seems to be the sense of what's happened for Yaakov as he lives in Mitzrayim with his son Yosef. It's interesting. This is the second parsha with a name that has to do with life, which mm-hmm. is actually the story of a death. The other interesting. Exactly right. Nice, Bert. Nice. That another parsha where we get an opening about the life of someone who's about to die, right? Or who died already, right? Exactly. Um, so the next verse tells us that that's exactly what's happening, is that in fact, Yaakov is close to death, right? He's on his deathbed when he summons Yosef and says to him, um, if, in fact, I have found favor in your eyes. Right? This is a typical formulaic opening for you know, a... Um, something to come. Something to come, right? So it's a request that's bigger than a, a regular request. It's going to be a ritual, right? It's going to be a ritualized commitment, promise, right? Assurance um, that something really big. Isn't that what... Jacob said to Esau, when he, when he met him, if I have found favor in your sight, I don't remember. I would have to look. But it's what Moshe says to God, right? When, if I, in fact, I have found favor in your sight, show me your kavod. Right? So it's, it's, an, it's an entry into an, a very serious ask. So what, what, what does he say? He says, if I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh. Where have we seen this before? And swear. Put your hand under my thigh and swear. The testimony, right? It is with Avraham sending his servant, the head of his household, to go find a bride for his son, Yitzchak. And he says, swear to me. that you'll, So put your hand under my thigh and swear to me. Why? Why, why, Carol, under the thigh? Cross your fingers. They'll feel if you're not really, you know, cross So that he can tell whether or not he's crossing his fingers, okay? One possibility. It's a very intimate, close connection because it really, was it really under the thigh? Or was it under the testicle? So, the under testicle. the thigh is extraordinarily close to the testicles. It is therefore very much the person who is on the receiving end of that uh, is vulnerable. Um, so it's, a, it's an act of trust. But, but why say to the other person, put your hand under my thigh? Why do I make myself vulnerable and say and swear to me? Because that equalizes it in a, in a way that it's a bond of trust. It equalizes it. Because the person making the promise is the one with the power. I'm already vulnerable. I need something from you. Why would I have you put your hand under my thigh? Close to my testes. Maybe it's the source of life. And so you're putting your hand and making 
about close to the source of life, maybe it'd be a very bad omen on you if you break that. Ha. So it would be a bad omen, okay? So like it, if I'm that close to fertility, to the source of life, it might be bad on me as the swearer if I break it. Likely, it originates with a sense that if you, the swearer, break it, you will affect the fruit of my loins in a way that is detrimental, right? So swear on the source of, of my fruition because if you break it, that's what will be damaged. In the case of Avraham and Eliezer, it's that his son won't have the progeny that he's supposed to have. Avraham's fruitfulness will literally be derailed, right? It, it might still happen, but if he picks the wrong bride or doesn't come home with the right woman, right? Avraham's progeny are not going to be who they're supposed to be. In this case, right, it's that it will affect his offspring or, right, the, the, the offspring that are supposed to inherit this land in a way if, if he himself is not buried back in that land, if he doesn't return. We're not sure how. We're not sure why. We're not sure exactly what that means. But this, this act seems to be about going to the absolute center of how someone will continue forward into the future and that your vow somehow impacts and affects that. And this is where we get the word testament. This is where we get testament, testimony, testify. Because in Greece, when you were asked, you know, it was only men who gave legal testimony, you would put your hand on your testes and swear. Right? You would testify because what you're saying is, should I give false testimony? May it impact right, the, the, fruit of the, the fruit of the vine, the fruit of, the fruit of my vine. loins. What if it was a woman who wanted someone to swear to them? Women don't, don't count. count. Women don't count, right? <laughs> Women say, I will find you. I will find you. <laughs> All right. So, um, so we have this very interesting, so this makes it a very ritualized, formulaic, very serious promise, right? It's a very serious issue. He wants a solemn oath with this, you know, legal kind of thing going with it about burying him, not in Egypt. He knows he's going to have to be buried there for a time, right? But remember, we're dealing with a culture that had secondary burial. The body was put somewhere for the flesh to rot and about a year later you would go collect the bones and put the bones in an ossuary and then the ossuary was buried so secondary burial you could have been buried first in Egypt then and then they could have taken the yeah. bones and put that's exactly what happens why, why Joseph why, okay so we have two questions why what is your why So you have to remember that we're in the Middle East. I got that. Right? Um, so burial is not easy in many places. And then you have to go deep enough that wild animals won't get to the corpse. Um, it's just not a simple affair. For us to open the ground maybe isn't such a big deal, right? So their burial ritual um, was that you put the body in a cave, someplace safe, so that it would decompose. But you don't leave the bones. That would be disrespectful. The bones don't decompose. The teeth don't decompose. So whatever isn't going to decompose, you don't just leave there. That would be 
disrespectful. So you take them and you carefully put them in an ossuary, and that was buried. So you had a so the cave of Machpelah, where Abraham's family is buried, there would have been many slots, right? And then in the center of the cave, that's where you buried the ossuary. But there were different spots for different people, you know, as different people died, for them to be in different states of decomposition before you put the, the body in the cave just lying on the ground? On a slab. On a slab. So what in in the cave. In the wall of the cave. Because you closed the cave. So nothing could get so in. Nothing could get in. So remember Jesus, the story of Jesus? Right. Three days later they go and the rock is moved and he's gone, right? Because so that was secondary burial. That, that was what you did. You put them in the slab in the wall of the cave and then went back when it was time to collect the the bones. Okay, so why, what did you ask, Bert? I asked why, jo- why Joseph. I mean, it's so natural that he calls Joseph. He could have called all of his kids. He could have called the oldest one. What do you think? Well, Joseph was very special to him. Still Plus, Joseph it. was the chief honcho in Egypt. But nevertheless, again, it's not the oldest. It's not the oldest. Um, which all of our stories are about turning that whole primo, rights of primogenitor on its head. Um, so Sarah suggests Joseph is still the favorite. Um, Bert, you pointed out that Joseph is the one with authority in Egypt. He's the, he's the local official, <laughs> the, the official of the locale. Um, he can get it done, right? So partly maybe it's practical that he knows Yosef can actually affect that. Um, he's Maybe still the favorite. And also, his, he knows that Joseph has been through so much hell, and he's still alive. That God must really be with him. So that him maybe he has some special relationship to God that the others don't. But does he know what the he doesn't know what the others did to Joseph? He we we is what's interesting is we never get that story. We never get the story of Yaakov finding out. Wait a minute, <laughs> you're here. You're alive? Had that happen. And we never get the story of Yosef telling his father how he got to be here. Right? We don't know. I would love to see the Midrash that one of you would write. Good, Pam. You're going to have it for no. next week. <laughs> yes. On, on the uh, Torah portion. Please. Um, that uh, when it says here with, uh, when Joseph is doing the swearing, he re- and he replied, I will do as you say. And then he says, swear it to me. So just saying, I will do as you say is not good enough. Swear it to me. So Joseph swore. It could have been interpreted in Egypt that it would be disrespectful. Here they're living in the good graces of the Egyptian people. and But Joseph, patriarch, wants to be out of that country. And so he could then, because he did swear, go to Pharaoh and say, I made this oath to my father, so don't be upset with me. But, and, so, and then Pharaoh then says, okay, keep your oath. So I think that it gave them um, able to save face with the Egyptians and also get his father out of their country. Okay. Excellent. Um, so he says, swear. Maybe to please the folks who are listening. We don't know that anyone's listening, but okay. Um, or then later he can say with plausible deniability, I swore. But later he is going to ask Pharaoh Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, it, it may be part of the ritual okay. that you have to swear. It's not enough to say yes. 
No, no, no. You, you got to use the words, with this ring, I be wet. Right? You have to say the right words for it to have the boom, like, you know, impact that it's supposed to have, that it's now sealed, that it's now for real, for real, that, that this has to happen. In any case, he's, he swears, and, and Yisrael, notice, we're, notice the, the names, right, that we're going to get for Yaakov here, and Yisrael bowed at the head of the bed. What, what that means, we're not sure. Is this another part of the ritual? We don't know. Um, is he too weak, you know, to get up? So he's in the bed, and the most he can do is bow in the bed at the head of the bed. We're not sure. It's an interesting detail. Uh, Yaakov is dying. I know. So he's in the bed, presumably. So Israel is the other name for Yaakov. Is this the same so word? He, he summons Joseph. Now that's interesting yeah. too. Uh, so the, the patriarchy is still very much part of the story. Exactly. Exactly. Is this connected to the Ten Commandments? Isn't it the same word that's used when we say you shall not take the name of God in vain? In what way? It's, isn't it the same word for swear here? Same roots? So you shall not swear by the name of God falsely. Right. So, I mean, yeah, so it's, you don't, it wouldn't be okay ever to swear mm -hmm. falsely, but particularly if you're going to invoke yud heh vav -Hey, that would be really, really, really bad. Rabbi, I was asked, I, I finally realized why I asked the question. Yes, sir. Uh, Israel bowed down at the head of the bed. If he's in the bed, what, how could you? Down. Right, that's what the rabbis are asking. Like, what? That's kind of weird. Uh, like, what's that? One would suggest that he that he was not in the bed if he bowed down at the head of the bed. Well, anyway. So my note says, being an invalid, the aged patriarch can only make some bodily gesture symbolic of prostration. Right. So he's for my not that my notes are any writer, but um, but it suggests that he's in the bed and makes some kind of gesture in the bed um, to acknowledge Joseph's promise and his swearing. All right, someone read at 48, please. Sometime afterward, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to see you, Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, El Shaddai appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me. And he said to me, I will make you fertile and numerous, making of you a community of peoples, and I will assign this land to your offspring to come for an everlasting possession. Now, your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, shall be mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, no less than Reuben and Simeon. But progeny born to you after them shall be yours. They shall be recorded instead of their brothers in their inheritance. I do this because when I was returning from Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow while I was journeying in the land of Canaan, when still some distance short of Ephrath, and I buried her there on the road to Ephrath. All right, let's stop Bethlehem. there. Good, thank you. All right. Yeah. Very confusing, right? Um, where it gets really confusing, we can generally say we're missing some pieces, right, of the tradition. There was a larger tradition, and we don't have 
all the pieces. That's one, that's one way of looking at it. And this is one of those places where scholars say, there is a tradition here that we've lost some of it. Um, what is that tradition? Or we have variant traditions, right? We've got remnants of variant traditions kind of stuck together here. Let's, let's pull it apart. Why is it confusing? Sometime afterwards. So we have this swearing business that is one of the traditions surrounding the patriarch Yaakov's death. Here's another one, right? Because if he was on his deathbed uh, sometime thereafter, clearly he wasn't dying. We've had this before. When Avraham made Eliezer swore, right? The time's coming for me to die. Well, he lived a really long time after that. So, but, so we seem to have two different just kind of stories about the end of traditions around the end of Yaakov's life. Here's another one. And what is that? But it's after the swearing business. Yosef was told, your father is ill. Right? So he's told that he's sick. Because the first time, by the way, we see illness in the Bible. The first time we're told somebody's sick. So he's sick. So he takes with him his two sons, Menashe and Ephraim. Who's the oldest? Menashe. Menashe is the older son. And Egypt, like in Canaan, is primogenitor. The firstborn is the one who gets more, if not everything. Still like that, sort of. <laughs> so he takes Menashe and Ephraim. And Yaakov is told, your son Yosef has come to see you. So Yisrael, right, we switch from Yaakov to Yisrael, summons his strength and sits up in bed. So here comes his important son, right, the vizier of Egypt. So he, you know, comports himself and sits up. Is it because he's still his favorite and he doesn't want to appear weak and, you know, that he wants to greet Yosef properly? When, when, the, when the text flips between Jacob and Israel... Is it basically telegraphing that, okay, when we use Jacob, we're sort of talking about the head of the clan. And when we're using the word Israel, we're referring to sort of the, his, his patriarchal status. In, in these texts, it seems so. Yeah. It seems like Yaakov is the one who's about to die, and he loves his son Yosef. Um, but now Yisrael the, is going to call some shots. Is going to call the next shots. Right. Is there exactly. Midrash about when Israel is used and when Yaakov is used. Yeah, there's lots of discussion in the rabbinic literature. We don't have time for that. <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of it right now is what Richard's getting at, um, which is Yaakov is the person who's dying and has children. Yisrael is the patriarch, the father of the nation. Who now we're getting Israel's history, literally the people Israel's history here, um, and this is what's going to affect who becomes part of the tribal confederacy of Israel right now. So Yisrael's about to speak, because who's going to comprise Yisrael? It's about to, how the elephant got its trunk, right? How did Menashe and Ephraim become part of the Israel confederacy? Here we go. Here's how it happened. Because what happened? Yes? Because he's asking that they become Reuben and Simeon. So let's read. Yaakov says to Yosef, Right? El Shaddai appeared to me at Luz, with his, which is the earlier name of the town of Bethel. Right? Bethel. That's what, remember, where we had this amazing vision, and, right? He builds an altar and, like, all that good stuff. Right? So, so, so El Shaddai appeared to me at Luz, meaning Bethel, in the land of Canaan, 
and blessed me and said to me, I will make you fertile and numerous, making of you a community of peoples, and I will assign this land to your offspring to come for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, shall be mine. What does that mean? They, they would have equal rights with the other of his the other sons. sons. It elevates their status. With Yaakov's sons. It elevates their status. Grandchildren became children. Yes. They're not going to be considered his grandchildren anymore. He is going to formally now adopt them. But it, it takes away their status with regard to the head honcho of Egypt. Very interesting. So why would they agree to this? Why would Yosef agree to this? Because it makes them part of the Jewish tribe as opposed to the Egyptian. So it solidifies their place within Judaism. At that point, there is no Judaism, right? There's Israelite religion. So it, it, but it... it solidifies their place within this clan that's going to be Israel, the descendants of Israel, he's not so worried, maybe, about their status vis-a-vis -vis Egypt. You better believe that's where the rabbis go. You better believe that's where the rabbis go. Who cares about Egyptian status? Yosef knows that's not where God is. That's not where the important stuff is. The important stuff is they're going to be descendants of Yisrael and Your dad... Your father's dying. He wants to adopt your two sons. What do you say? Why would he do it? Let's, let's, let's pretend it's not about all this becoming. A, uh. I don't understand why. I mean, he's still part of the, the line. Who? The, the, the grandchildren. So why does he do it, Roseanne? Just to make it Forget you. Say, why does Yaakov do it? Why does Yaakov do it? Why is Yaakov adopting Ephraim and Manasseh? If they're still his descendants, he's their grandchildren. What's the problem? They have equal status with the first his first generation. It, they won't have equal status, meaning what? What does equal status in this case look like? The division of the land. His sons will inherit the land. They will be the ones to whom land is partitioned when they conquer the land of Canaan. They not only get the land, but sort of Joseph's part of the family inherits a disproportionate amount of the land. Because if you're going to divide the land up into 12 pieces and Joseph and his two sons each get a piece, they've got one quarter of the land. So they, they, they actually don't wind up with quite that much. It's Ephraim and Manasseh that are counted, not Yosef. Why wouldn't Yosef, right? why wouldn't Yosef get it? It turns out Ephraim and Manasseh are the ones that we count um, and we, when we look at the apportionment of the land. What's, but what, what, what demographically was true is that Manasseh and Ephraim were huge, huge tribes. So they wound up, they wound up. They had a lot of territory because they were huge tribes. Now you back up and tell the story about how that happened. Mm. Right now you talk about they get a lot because Yaakov adopts it. Did right? it have so, anything to do with the fact that they were born when uh, Jacob thought that Joseph was or was not alive? So clearly there's a distinction for, for Yaakov between the sons who were born before, before he came to Yosef and after. He's making a very clear distinction. 
But if you look carefully at the text, we're not sure what the distinction is. Does Joseph have other sons? Did all these 17 years he's cutting out? That that Yaakov's cutting out because he's cutting it off at before I knew you were alive? Doesn't say. Does Yosef not have any other children? You would think in 17 years there had been a few more than Menashe and Ephraim, right? Does he pick two of, of... of Yaakov's, of Yosef's sons only out of all the others? Well, somehow well, connected They wouldn't have wasted words on this yeah. unless there probably were others. So the theory goes now from Robert that, that they, they wouldn't waste the words if, if there weren't a selection of, of those sons from among other sons, like, meaning these two, not your only ones. Okay, what were you saying about Rachel? Well, he, he gives a reason. The reason I do this is because when I was returning from Padan, Rachel died. So I don't know what that means, but this clearly... So this is what I was asking Roseanne. Why, why is he doing this at all? Wait, does he think Rachel might have borne him other sons? Certainly had Rachel lived, she would have... I mean, in a perfect world, she was young. She died giving birth to her second son. So presumably what we get is Yosef... Yaakov feeling like he was robbed. He was robbed of sons by Rachel. So what's the closest thing he can get? Is Rachel's oldest grandchildren. Right? So he's going to take Rachel's eldest grandchildren, his only offspring or his only descendants that's purely through him and Rachel, well, and us not also, Yosef's wife also. Um, so there's some in there. But, but the only way to get to children from um, the eldest, anyway, uh, through, is through Yosef, through both Rachel and Yaakov. So this begs the question, so why just two? If he's got other sons, why just two? So that's confusing. Right? Why, why, why two? Why not say seven? She would have had seven. Thought that the other his other sons, Ruvain, everybody would would get upset because it was decreasing their inheritance by getting grandsons in there. So, so seven is unacceptable. They would have rebelled, but two, eh. Well, so okay. Ah, she had two, so let's double it. <laughs> okay, Ruben. No, in addition. But but it's not okay. She had two, so let's let's give her two more. There's a community in India called who claim that they're from the tribe of Manasseh and who want to go to Israel. Yes, there is. There you go. <laughs> I guess we'll wait and see. <laughs> the other interesting thing that's going on here is, is the, the order is Ephraim and Manasseh. Ah, okay, let's go there. Let's go there. That, that's where we're going next. Very good. Versus Reuben. Yes, yes, yes. So, so we're not going to answer the question, are there other sons? We're not going to answer the question exactly why. Right? We're exploring all of these, whatever. But what we know is 
He says only these, not progeny, right? Born to you after them. So possibly there aren't any. Possibly there's a tradition where there are. It's very confusing. Um, but somehow it's absolutely tied to Rachel, right? And, and her death. That, that's what we know. All right. Somebody read it, verse 8. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he asked, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. He, Jacob, said, Bring them to me, pray, that I may bless them. Israel's eyes had grown clouded with age. He could no longer see. Joseph brought them over to him, whereupon he kissed and hugged them. Israel then said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and here God has shown me your progeny as well. Joseph then removed them from his knees and bowed down before him to the ground. Then Joseph took the two of them, Ephraim with his right hand to Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand to Israel's right, and he brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and placed it on Ephraim's head, even though he was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his arms, though Manasseh was the firstborn. He then blessed Joseph, saying, The God before whom walked my fathers Abraham and Isaac, the God one who has shepherded me ever since I came into being until this day, the angel who has rescued me from all harm, bless these lads. Through them let my name and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, ever be recalled, and let them greatly multiply within the land. When Joseph saw that his father had placed his right hand on Ephraim's head, it seemed wrong to him. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head onto the head of Manasseh. Joseph said to his father, Not that way, father. This is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused, saying, I know, my son, I know. He too shall become a people, and he too shall be great. Yet his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you shall the people of Israel give their blessing, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. And he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Okay. So once again... Right, we have the bracha given to the other son who, in the order of things in the ancient world, should not have inherited it. So we, we're getting the, now the adoption ceremony, right? Where have we seen this before in Torah? Do, do, do. Hmm? We got it with women. They're on adoption. We get it with we get it with both Rachel and Leah, right? Who give their handmaids to their husband and say that it's going to birth, let her birth on my knees, right? Knees in the ancient world, children on knees. This is about adoption, right? Again, close to. The testes close to, you know, for women, you know, all of those places have to do with fertility. They have to do with birth, right? You put the child close to that, right? So knees, thighs, right? This is all about fertility. So 
When the child is on the knee, it's about legal ownership of that offspring. So um, bearing on the knees is about, it might be coming out of you, but if they're on my knees, it's my child. So this is a ritualized formulaic act. Yosef removes the sons from his knees. Right Now imagine they're old enough to walk, so it's not on his knee because they need a place to sit. It's clearly part of the ritual that they are on his knees. He moves them from his knees, right, and bows low to the ground before his father and takes them to his father, right? Presumably, they're not going to be able to be on Yaakov's knees because Yaakov is in the bed, very sick, right? So how does Yaakov transfer, you know, make this transfer official? How does he make it happen? With the hands being placed on their heads and saying the formulaic words that make them now, right, his. And, I mean, Yosef has transferred them in this act of taking them off his knees and bringing them to his father. He's transferred them to his father. And now that they belong to his father, the father, the patriarch, can give them his patriarchal deathbed blessing. Yes? Because he now has the authority to do that. He's now their father, if you will. So um, he asks him, right, who, who are these? Why does he ask, who are these people? He's lived there for 17 years. He can't see very well. Maybe he can't see well enough to legally identify the adoptees. Right? You go to court, you don't just say, um, that's Sarah Moskowitz, my mom. Or Halavai, it should only be. Uh, but what do you have to do? You have to take your driver's license out. You have to take your birth certificate. It's not enough in a legal act to say, oh yeah, that's my mom. You have to, right? You have to prove that. So this is part of that whole official legal thing. He asks the natural father, who are these boys? So that the natural father identifies them. That makes this now kosher, right? It makes it legal that these are, in fact, Ephraim and Menashe. He switches. He, Joseph knows that he has to bring the older son to his father's right hand, right? That's the powerful good, good side is the right. And his younger son to the left. But Yaakov switches his hands, right? And puts them on the other way. And then gives the blessing that we have here. And Yosef is not happy. Interestingly, Yosef, who was one of the younger sons, right, is not happy that his younger son is put before his older son. Um, and so says, whoa, 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 whoa. You got it mixed up, right? You, you got to go this way. Put your right hand on Menashe's head. And Yaakov says... He too will be a great people, but his younger brother will surpass him. I'm still missing the why. Why the switch? Why the switch? It seems that Yaakov knows something. Do you remember when we get the, the assurance by God that, that to Abraham that it's okay. Yishmael is going to be 
right? He's going to have, he's going to be a great nation. He's going to have lots of folks too. And about Asaph, you know, he's also going to have, right? It seems like they're, they're, that, that Yaakov has an understanding somehow that Ephraim is going to, in fact, surpass Menashe, right? So my notes, this is always where, because Reuben, you lift up for us what's really important. There's Torah history and there's lived Israelite history. So what you're hearing is the lived Israelite history coming up through the Torah text. So my note, for instance, says, the texts that record Menashe as being the natural firstborn must reflect an exceedingly early and authentic phase in the history of the Israelite tribal relationships. Meaning, at one time, Menashe was a very successful tribe within the Israelite confederacy, but things changed historically. There would be no conceivable reason to invent such a tradition given subsequent developments. In other words, why not just make Ephraim, who's the more successful tribe, why not make Ephraim the older one? If you're going to write the story of how all this started, why not make Ephraim the firstborn? Because clearly there was a time when Menashe was more, more important, more successful. The present episode provides an explanation for the reversal with Ephraim becoming the more powerful and more influential of the two tribes, even to the extent that its name eventually became synonymous with the kingdom of Israel. And this phenomenon is traced here to Jacob's blessing. Following his adoption of Joseph's two sons, Yaakov now exercises his, his prerogative to set aside chronological priority and to grant Ephraim preferential status. So it, it reflects a historical reality that Menashe had been you know, the big successful tribe at one point, but it reversed, and Ephraim eventually supersedes Menashe. Isn't there a trope that goes throughout not only the Torah, but the rest of the Tanakh, that it's not, you know, it's not always the most powerful who succeeds. It's not always the one who's firstborn who succeeds. It's not the rich who always succeed. You know, mm -hmm. you know, David was a shepherd. You know, all these things where, you know, great things can come from lowly people, mm -hmm. um, which sounds kind of contrary to what, say, the preva the prevailing yep. um, mythologies of the of sure. the surrounding area would be, sure. where it's you know the king's son does this, or you know the great warrior does that. Where here you have very humble people doing great things. Right. And like so we've said, it's another case of reversal, 100%. If all the peoples were born of God, I mean, and they were all descended from Adam, then it was the younger people, namely the Israelites, who displaced the Canaanites. So you have a parallel there as well, that we are the younger people at least mm -hmm. in terms of the people who were there. The history of the region. In the history, right, of, the the history region. of the region. And that God makes us, at least in the story, the inheritors. Yeah, and, and not the most powerful either. Right. Instead of the Canaanites. Right. And that continues. <laughs> right. We're, we're, we're this big. Right. In a region that's like, the, you know, we continue to be this big. And we are, how, how we create such a fuss in the world, I don't know. We're this big. Right. Like, um, all right, so he says that through you shall Israel invoke blessing, and that is, of course, the case. To this day, we place our hands on the heads of our male children and say, 
Yesimcha Adonai ke Ephraim ki Menashe. May God make you like Ephraim and Menashe. So uh, Ephraim and Menashe, what is it? Why God make you like them? Why not like Yaakov and, and Avraham? Why go to Ephraim and Menashe? It's a reenacting of this. So it's a reenacting of this. But why not say, may God make you like Avraham and Yitzchak and Yaakov and Ephraim and what? what, what, what? Well, I'll let you talk about the brotherly love aspect. Of okay. This, but I read a really interesting um, drosh about um, that Joseph was somehow able, living in Egypt, the belly of the beast, to still remain true to the gods of his fathers to the point where he raised his sons that they merited becoming uh, part of the tribes. And so it's a lesson that it's saying all people, even to this day, we're going to bless our sons through these two names, that wherever we are in the world, we can still remain Jews, practice Judaism, even in the situation there. And to this day, it's still true. Lovely, lovely, lovely. But no matter where we are, we can remain true to our ancestors yeah. and live fully into the identity of being their descendants as well as being the vizier of Egypt, the president of the United States, Halavai. Maybe, um, maybe it's a uh, sort of uh, making us again aware of the reality because he's already given them the status of Reuben and... Simeon. So that's already happened, but these are the roots, and he's making us recognize that. Very nice. So what, what Pam said she would leave to me to tell you is the, the Midrashic tradition saying that, that all the brothers we've had until now, Cain and Abel, right? Yaakov and Esav, Avraham and Yishmael, I mean Yaakov and Yishmael, Yitzchak and Esau, I mean like it's just, or it's the other way, um, that all of the brotherly sibling relationships that we've had until now have been ones of split. There's tension, there's fighting, then they split off from each other and go separate ways. That something about Yosef, Yosef is the first patriarch to manage to have two sons that apparently are happy together or love each other or haven't split off yet, right? You know, so that, that it's an invocation of something that, that Yosef's generation, that him as a father, as a patriarch, was able to affect, and it's that that we're wishing for our children, right? That that's what we want to invoke when we invoke a Shabbat blessing and an identity for them, you know, is that it should be, you know, with them as it is for Ephraim and Menashe, that first real embodiment of a family that comes close together, um, which hadn't happened until then. Um, what that means for the fact that Rachel and Leah had their own business going on, I'm not sure. But I want to close with going to 49. And Yaakov called his sons and said, Asfu, get yourselves together. And I will tell you what is going to happen to y'all at the end of days. 
Then what does he say? Assemble and hearken, right? We get this very poetic Hebrew, B'nai Yaakov, Vishimu El Yisrael Avichem, and listen to Israel, your father. He's going to tell them what's going to happen at the end of days. And what does he say? Ruvain, Bechori Ata, Kochi, Vereshit Oni. And he goes into this talking about Ruvain and who Ruvain is. And then he goes into talking about who? Shimon and Levi and who they are. And then he goes and talking about Yehuda and who he is. And then he goes through all of his sons and then that's the end. Where is, what's going to happen to them at the end of days? Uh, not here. It is not here. So the rabbis have this wonderful visual midrashic tradition. In every single case in the Torah, when you end one parsha, before you begin the next parsha, you have a minimum of nine spaces. So the rabbis say, black fire on white fire is the Torah. We get the black fire, which is the words of Torah, the letters. That's one level of revelation. The other revelation we're given is the white fire. The spaces between the letters. The empty space within a letter itself. The spaces between the words. The spaces between the partiot. In this case, there must be a reason that there's no white fire between last week's Parsha and this week's Parsha. And the rabbinic visual scribal midrashic tradition is it's because Yaakov was about to, in fact tell his sons what was going to be. That they were going to be slaves in Egypt for 400 years, but it's going to be okay. Because there's going to be this redemption, there's going to be this guy named Moshe, then you're going to leave, there's going to be this Paschal night thing, you're going to escape, there's going to be plagues, it's going to be terrible, but you'll be safe, and you'll get out, and then you'll go to Sinai, and then you'll have Torah, and then you'll go to the land of Israel, and it's just all grooviness from there. Don't worry. But it doesn't happen. That God closes off that vision for Yaakov. He has it, and he's about to say it, and boom, it's gone. God closes, he closes Yaakov's mouth. And so the rabbinic tradition, of course, asks, why? Would he begin this vision, and then God cut him off from it? And Aviva Zornberg has an amazing exploration of exactly this question. Why would that be that he would begin that vision and then have it shut down? And I'll, give, I'll let you read it more in detail on your own because I know we're late. I want you to look at page 357 of uh, Aviva Zornberg from her book, The Beginning of Desire. Page 357. Two sheets. Sorry, two sheets. You should have two papers. I don't see people with two, pa two papers. You got two? Two papers. Okay. When we, were, when we were speculating earlier about why Joseph went along with this adoption thing, could it be that, you know, we know that Joseph has access to knowledge that many other people don't through his visions and things like that. 
Is it possible that he, he sends it? If he thought that Egypt was the place to be or the place to stay, given his status and what was likely to happen under those circumstances, that's where, that's where his son should inherit. But if he has a premonition that things may soon go south in Egypt, then that's not the place where they should inherit. They should inherit in a place that's going to have a future. Yeah, there, there is a Midrashic tradition that suggests that, yeah, that Yosef knows uh -huh. that it's already happening. That there are already things happening that let him know that it, it's not going to be good for them to stay there. Page 357. Hopefully you have 357, 358, 359. All right, don't worry about it. Okay. Just go to 357. And if you don't have it yet, you'll get it. Second, third, second full paragraph of 357. Jacob wanted to reveal the end. This is the moment when Jacob calls his children around his deathbed and proclaims his intent to speak to them of the, quote, last things. And Jacob called his sons and said, Come together that I may, may tell you what is to befall you at the end of days. Assemble and hearken, O sons of Jacob. Hearken to Israel your father. What follows is a description of each son with no eschatological reference. It is this discontinuity between Jacob's preamble and the content of his final speech that generates the Midrashic narrative. Right? Meaning he's going to speak about the end of days and he doesn't. Which is an engraved invitation to the rabbis, right? To say, why not? Rashi here quotes the Midrash saying, he sought to reveal the end and the presence of God departed from him and he began to say other things. The whole deathbed speech is, it seems, a diversion from Jacob's original intent. It bears at best an oblique relation to the final meetings that Jacob would have wished to communicate to his children. The other things that he finds himself telling his children are quite different from the final things he had projected. Quote, what is to befall you at the end of days? That's what the rabbis are going to be asking. Page 358. First full paragraph on page 358. A certain vitality of vision is given to Jacob and then blocked off from him. For if Jacob had succeeded in conveying to his children a strong, unequivocal vision of, quote, the end the experience of exile would have, been, would have been entirely robbed of its necessary sting. Let's say that again. Had they been given a vision of the end, the experience of exile would have been entirely robbed of its necessary sting. That experience knows of no easy resolution. Jacob's children will have to live its absurdity and its pain, its apparently fruitless yearnings without intoxicating visions of harmony to sustain them. What resolutions, what orderings they achieve, they will have to achieve in the immediacy, the vulnerability, the confusion of their own lives. What does that mean? And it's very, uh, you know, 
I mean, one of the reasons I became Jewish was because I felt like, well, that's too easy of an answer. And I think this is Jewish in a way we live and we are. But it's interesting how we just never get the story. <laughs> you just never get the full story because you're supposed to figure it out. Very nice. That you, that there's some way that you have to figure it out that if you are assured, you're positive about the end, meaning a good end, and, and I think it makes a difference here, that it's a good end, it's all going to be okay, right. there's something that then doesn't happen for you in the now. That's right. There's something serious that's missing. It's a crutch. Because we always should have anxiety about what the end should be, will be. Because without that anxiety, what? You're not working to make things come out in the future by working when? Now. now. If you know it's all going to be okay, it's very easy, A, to get complacent. Then I don't really have to do anything. It's all going to come out okay. I don't have to work to make that happen. It's assured. It's already done. I don't have to become anything. I don't have to dig. I don't have to think. I don't have to risk. I don't have to grow because it's all going to be fine. And there's something about the anxiety. There's something about the pain of what can appear meaningless. <coughs> the suffering. Aviva Zorenberg suggests that the Midrashic tradition says there's a necessary sting that has to happen. Or else, we, there's something serious missing about who we become. We're not Israel. We're not the people who struggle anymore. If there's not a sting of possible, this is all meaningless. This is all for nothing. There isn't going to be a good end. I think about our people. I think about the Shoah. I think about Nazi Germany. I think about all the times, the Inquisition. All those times that our people wonders, what is it for? The pain of that our tradition seems to suggest informs who we are as human beings individually, who we are certainly as a people. And for other parts of the tradition, I heard it phrased very eloquently by Rabbi Ismar Scorch of JTS, that it's because we have to have a redemptive experience. We have to have suffered in order to ally ourselves with people who suffer. And he says beautifully, Egyptian bondage is a necessary prelude to fulfilling the mission of God's chosen people. If the progeny of Abraham are to be a source of blessing for the nations of the world, if they are to be a model of what is just and right, then they must have exposure to what is wrong with the world. To endure the insecurity of homelessness and the abasement of slavery is the requisite soil for creating a body politic imbued with principles of equality and justice. The Torah's oft-repeated compassion for the stranger seems to well up from the nightmare of dire oppression. And that this necessary sting of our suffering is somehow um, closely and intimately uh, and, and existentially a necessary part of who each of us as an individual and who we as a people become. Shabbat Shalom.
You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.